Section 18 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Dennis Sayers. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 5, Chapters 10 through 12. Chapter 10 showing the truth of many observations of Ovid, and of other more grave writers, who have proved beyond contradiction that wine is often the forerunner of incontinency. Jones retired from the company, in which we have seen him engaged, into the fields, where he intended to cool himself by a walk in the open air, before he attended Mr. Allworthy. There, whilst he renewed those meditations on his dear Sophia, which the dangerous illness of his friend and benefactor had for some time interrupted, an accident happened, which with sorrow we relate, and with sorrow doubtless will it be read. However, that historic truth to which we profess so inviolable an attachment obliges us to communicate it to posterity. It was now a pleasant evening in the latter end of June, when our hero was walking in a most delicious grove, where the gentle breezes fanning the leaves, together with the sweet trilling of a murmuring stream, and the melodious notes of the nightingales formed altogether the most enchanting harmony. In this scene, so sweetly accommodated to love, he meditated on his dear Sophia, while his wanton fancy roamed unbounded over all her beauties, and his lively imagination painted the charming maid in various ravishing forms, his warm heart melted with tenderness, and at length, throwing himself on the ground, by the side of a gently murmuring brook, he broke forth into the following ejaculation. O oh, Sophia, would heaven give thee to my arms, how blessed would be my condition! Cursed be that fortune which sets a distance between us. Was I but possessed of thee, one only suit of rags, thy whole estate, is there a man on earth whom I would envy? How contemptible would the brightest Circassian beauty, dressed in all the jewels of the Indies, appear to my eyes! But why do I mention another woman? Could I think my eyes capable of looking at any other with tenderness? These hands should tear them from my head. No, my Sophia, if cruel fortune separates us for ever, my soul shall dote on thee alone. The chastest constancy will I ever preserve to thy image. Though I should never have possession of thy charming person, Still shalt thou alone have possession of my thoughts, my love, my soul. 
Oh, my fond heart is so wrapped in that tender bosom, that the brightest beauties would for me have no charms, nor would a hermit be colder in their embraces. Sophia, Sophia alone shall be mine. What raptures are in that name! I will engrave it on every tree. At these words he started up, and beheld, not his Sophia, no, nor a Circassian maid richly and elegantly attired for the Gran Signore Seraglio. No, without a gown, in a shift that was somewhat of the coarsest, and none of the cleanest, bedewed likewise with some odiferous effluvia, the produce of the day's labor, with a pitchfork in her hand. Molly Seagram approached. Our hero had his penknife in his hand, which he had drawn for the before-mentioned purpose of carving on the bark, when the girl coming near him cried out with a smile, "'You don't intend to kill me, squire, I hope.' "'Why should you think I would kill you?' answered Jones. "'Nay,' replied she, "'after your cruel usage of me, when I saw you last, killing me would, perhaps, be too great a kindness for me to expect. Here ensued a parley, which, as I do not think myself obliged to relate it, I shall omit. It is sufficient that it lasted a full quarter of an hour, at the conclusion of which they retired into the thickest part of the grove. Some of my readers may be inclined to think this event unnatural. However, the fact is true, and perhaps may be sufficiently accounted for by suggesting that Jones probably thought one woman better than none, and Molly, as probably, imagined two men to be better than one. Besides the before-mentioned motive assigned to the present behavior of Jones, the reader will be likewise pleased to recollect in his favor that he was not at this time perfect master of that wonderful power of reason which so well enables grave and wise men to subdue their unruly passions and to decline any of these prohibited amusements. Wine now had totally subdued this power in Jones. He was, indeed, in a condition in which, if reason had interposed, though only to advise, she might have received the answer which one Cleostratus gave many years ago to a silly fellow who asked him if he was not ashamed to be drunk. Are not you, said Cleostratus, ashamed to admonish a drunken man. To say the truth, in a court of justice, drunkenness must not be an excuse. Yet, in a court of conscience, it is greatly so. And therefore, Aristotle, who commends the laws of Patacus, by which drunken men receive double punishment for their crimes, allows that there is more of policy than justice in that law. Now, 
if there are any transgressions pardonable from drunkenness, they are certainly such as Mr. Jones was at present guilty of, on which head I could pour forth a vast profusion of learning, if I imagined it would either entertain my reader, or teach him anything more than he knows already. For his sake, therefore, I shall keep my learning to myself, and return to my history. It hath been observed that fortune seldom doth things by halves. To say truth, there is no end to her freaks whenever she is disposed to gratify or displease. No sooner had our hero retired with his dido, but spelluncum bliffle dux edivinus yendum divinient. The parson and the young squire, who were taking a serious walk, arrived at the stile which leads into the grove, and the latter caught a view of the lovers just as they were sinking out of sight. Bliffle knew Jones very well, though he was at above a hundred yards' distance, and he was as positive to the sex of his companion, though not to the individual person. He started, blessed himself, and uttered a very solemn ejaculation. Thwackham expressed some surprise at these sudden emotions, and asked the reason of them. To which Bliffle answered, He was certain he had seen a fellow and wench retire together among the bushes, which he doubted not was with some wicked purpose. As to the name of Jones, he thought proper to conceal it, and why he did so must be left to the judgment of the sagacious reader, for we never choose to assign motives to the actions of men, when there is any possibility of our being mistaken. The parson, who was not only strictly chaste in his own person, but a great enemy to the opposite vice in all others, fired at this information. He desired Mr. Bliffle to conduct him immediately to the place, which, as he approached, he breathed forth vengeance mixed with lamentations. Nor did he refrain from casting some oblique reflections on Mr. Allworthy, insinuating that the wickedness of the country was principally owing to the encouragement he had given to vice, by having exerted such kindness to a bastard, and by having mitigated that just and wholesome vigour of the law, which allots a very severe punishment to loose wenches. The way through which our hunters were to pass in pursuit of their game was so beset with briars that it greatly obstructed their walk, and caused, besides, such a rustling, that Jones had sufficient warning of their arrival before they could surprise him. Nay, indeed, so incapable was Thwackham of concealing his indignation, and such vengeance did he mutter forth every step he took, 
that this alone must have abundantly satisfied Jones, that he was, to use the language of sportsmen, found sitting. Chapter 11. In which a simile in Mr. Pope's period of a mile introduces as bloody a battle as can possibly be fought without the assistance of steel or cold iron. As in the season of rutting, an uncouth phrase by which the vulgar denote that gentle dalliance which in the well-wooded forest of Hampshire, note, this is an ambiguous phrase, and may mean either a forest well clothed with wood, or well stripped of it. End of note. That gentle dalliance, which in the well-wooded forest of Hampshire passes between lovers of the faring kind, if, while the lofty-crested stag meditates the amorous sport, a couple of puppies, or any other beast of hostile note, should wander so near the temple of Venus Farina, that the fair hind should shrink from the place, touch with that somewhat, either of fear or frolic, of nicety or skittishness, with which nature hath bedecked all females, or hath at least instructed them how to put it on. Lest through the indelicacy of males the Samian mysteries should be pried into by unhallowed eyes, for at the celebration of these rites the female priestess cries out with her in Virgil, who was then probably hard at work on such celebration, Procul, o procul este profani, proclamat vates, totoque absitite luco. Far hence be souls profane, the sibyl cried, and from the grove abstain. Dryden. If, I say, while these sacred rites which are in common to genus omne animatium, are in agitation between the stag and his mistress, any hostile beasts should venture too near, on the first hint given by the frighted hind, fierce and tremendous rushes forth the stag to the entrance of the thicket. There stands he sentinel over his love, stamps the ground with his foot, and with his horns brandished aloft in air, proudly provokes the apprehended foe to combat. Thus, and more terrible, when he perceived the enemy's approach, leapt forth our hero. Many a step advanced he forwards, in order to conceal the trembling hind, and, if possible, to secure her retreat. And now Thwackham, having first darted some livid lightning from his fiery eyes, began to thunder forth, Fie upon it! Fie upon it, Mr. Jones! Is it possible you should be the person? You see, answered Jones, it is possible I should be here. 
"'And who?' said Thwackum. "'Is that wicked slut with you?' "'If I have any wicked slut with me,' cries Jones, "'it is possible I shall not let you know who she is.' "'I command you to tell me immediately,' says Thwackum, "'and I would not have you imagine, young man, that your age, though it hath somewhat abridged the purpose of tuition, hath totally taken away the authority of the master. The relation of the master and scholar is indelible, as indeed all other relations are, for they all derive their original from heaven. I would have you think yourself, therefore, as much obliged to obey me now, as when I taught you your first rudiments. I believe you would, cries Jones, but that will not happen, unless you had the same birchen argument to convince me. Then I must tell you plainly, said Thwackham, I am resolved to discover the wicked wretch. And I must tell you plainly, returned Jones, I am resolved you shall not. Thwackham then offered to advance, and Jones laid hold of his arms, which Mr. Bliffle endeavoured to rescue, declaring he would not see his old master insulted. Jones, now finding himself engaged with two, thought it necessary to rid himself of one of his antagonists as soon as possible. He therefore applied to the weakest first, and letting the parson go, he directed a blow at the young squire's breast, which, luckily taking place, reduced him to measure his length on the ground. Thwackham was so intent on the discovery, that the moment he found himself at liberty, he stepped forward directly into the fern, without any great consideration of what might in the meantime befall his friend. But he had advanced a very few paces into the thicket, before Jones, having defeated Blifil, overtook the parson, and dragged him backward by the skirt of his coat. This parson had been a champion in his youth, and had won much honour by his fist, both at school and at the university. He had now, indeed, for a great number of years, declined the practice of that noble art, yet was his courage full as strong as his faith, and his body no less strong than either. He was, moreover, as the reader may perhaps have conceived, somewhat irascible in his nature. When he looked back, therefore, and saw his friend stretched out on the ground, and found himself at the same time so roughly handled by one who had formerly been only passive in all conflicts between them, a circumstance which highly aggravated the whole. His patience at length gave way. He threw himself into a posture of offence, and collecting all his force, attacked Jones in the front with as much impetuosity as he had formerly attacked him in the rear. 
our hero received the enemy's attack with the most undaunted intrepidity, and his bosom resounded with the blow. This he presently returned with no less violence, aiming likewise at the parson's breast. But he dexterously drove down the fist of Jones, so that it reached only his belly, where two pounds of beef and as many of pudding were then deposited, and whence consequently no hollow sound could proceed. Many lusty blows, much more pleasant as well as easy to have seen, than to read or describe, were given on both sides. At last a violent fall, in which Jones had thrown his knees into Thwackham's breast, so weakened the latter that victory had been no longer dubious, had not Bliffle, who had now recovered his strength, again renewed the fight, and by engaging with Jones, given the parson a moment's time to shake his ears, and to regain his breath. And now both together attacked our hero, whose blows did not retain that force with which they had fallen at first, so weakened was he by his combat with Thwackham, for, though the pedagogue chose rather to play solos on the human instrument, and had been lately used to those only, yet he still retained enough of his ancient knowledge to perform his part very well in a duet. The victory, according to modern custom, was like to be decided by numbers, when, on a sudden, a fourth pair of fists appeared in the battle, and immediately paid their compliments to the parson, and the owner of them at the same time crying out, Are you not ashamed, and be damned to you, to fall two of you upon one? The battle, which was of the kind that for distinction's sake is called royal, now raged with the utmost violence during a few minutes, till Blilfil, being a second time laid sprawling by Jones, Thwackham condescended to apply for quarter to his new antagonist, who was now found to be Mr. Western himself, for in the heat of the action none of the combatants had recognized him. In fact, that honest squire, happening in his afternoon's walk with some company, to pass through the field where the bloody battle was fought, and having concluded, from seeing three men engaged, that two of them must be on a side, he hastened from his companions, and with more gallantry than policy, espoused the cause of the weaker party by which generous proceeding he very probably prevented Mr. Jones from becoming a victim to the wrath of Thwackham, and to the pious friendship which Blilful bore his old master. For, besides the disadvantage of such odds, Jones had not yet sufficiently recovered the former strength of his broken arm. This reinforcement, however, soon put an end to the action, 
and Jones, with his ally, obtained the victory. Chapter 12 In which is seen a more moving spectacle than all the blood in the bodies of Thwackum and Bliffle, and of twenty other such, is capable of producing. The rest of Mr. Western's company were now come up, being just at the instant when the action was over. These were the honest clergymen, whom we have formerly seen, at Mr. Western's table, Mrs. Western, the aunt of Sophia, and lastly the lovely Sophia herself. At this time the following was the aspect of the bloody field, in one place lay on the ground, all pale, and almost breathless, the vanquished Bliffle. Near him stood the conqueror Jones, almost covered with blood, part of which was naturally his own, and part had been lately the property of the Reverend Mr. Thwackham. In a third place stood the said Thwackham, like King Porus sullenly submitting to the conqueror. The last figure in the piece was Western the Great, most gloriously forbearing, the vanquished foe. Bluffel, in whom there was little sign of life, was at first the principal object of the concern of every one, and particularly of Mrs. Western, who had drawn from her pocket a nose of hartshorn, and was herself about to apply it to his nostrils, when, on a sudden, the attention of the whole company was diverted from poor Bliffle, whose spirit, if it had any such design, might have now taken an opportunity of stealing off to the other world without any ceremony. For now a more melancholy and a more lovely object lay motionless before them. This is no other than the charming Sophia herself, who, from the sight of blood, or from fear for her father, or from some other reason, had fallen down in a swoon, before any one could get to her assistance. Mrs. Western first saw her, and screamed. Immediately two or three voices cried out, Miss Western is dead. Hartshorn, water, every remedy was called for, almost at one and the same instant. The reader may remember that in our description of this grove we mentioned a murmuring brook. Which brook did not come there? as such gentle streams flow through vulgar romances, with no other purpose than to murmur. No, fortune had decreed to ennoble this little brook with a higher honour than any of those which washed the plains of Arcadia ever deserved. Jones was rubbing Bliffle's temples, for he began to fear that he had given him a blow too much, when the words, Miss Western, and dead, rushed at once on his ear. He started up, 
left Bliffle to his fate, and flew to Sophia, whom, while all the rest were running against each other, backward and forward, looking for water in the dry paths, he caught up in his arms, and then ran away with her, over the field of the rivulet above mentioned, where, plunging himself into the water, he contrived to besprinkle her face, head, and neck very plentifully. Happy was it for Sophia that the same confusion which prevented her other friends from serving her, prevented them likewise from obstructing Jones. He had carried her half-ways before they knew what he was doing, and he had actually restored her to life before they reached the water-side. She stretched out her arms, opened her eyes, and cried, Oh, heavens! just as her father, aunt, and the parson came up. Jones, who had hitherto held this lovely burthen in his arms, now relinquished his hold, but gave her at the same instant a tender caress, which, had her senses been then perfectly restored, could not have escaped her observation. As she expressed, therefore, no displeasure at this freedom, we suppose she was not sufficiently recovered from her swoon at the time. This tragical scene was now converted into a sudden scene of joy. In this, our hero was certainly the principal character, for, as he probably felt more ecstatic delight in having saved Sophia, than she herself received from being saved. So, neither were the congratulations paid to her equal to what were conferred on Jones, especially by Mr. Western himself, who, after having once or twice embraced his daughter, fell to hugging and kissing Jones. He called him the preserver of Sophia, and declared there was nothing, except her, or his estate, which he would not give him. But, upon recollection, he afterwards accepted his foxhounds, the Chevalier and Miss Slouch, for so he called his favourite mare. All fears for Sophia being now removed, Jones became the object of the squire's consideration. Come, my lad, says Western, de off thy quote, and wash thy feasts, for at in a devilish pickle I promise thee. Come, come, wash thyself, and shat go home with me, and will thee to vend thee another quote. Jones immediately complied threw off his coat, went down to the water, and washed both his face and bosom, for the latter was as much exposed and as bloody as the former. But though the water could clear off the blood, it could not remove the black and blue marks which Thwackham had imprinted on both his face and breast, and which, being discerned by Sophia, drew from her 
a sigh, and a look of inexpressible tenderness. Jones received this full in his eyes, and it had infinitely a stronger effect on him than all the contusions which he had received before. An effect, however, widely different, for so soft and balmy was it, that had all of his former blows been stabs, it would for some minutes have prevented his feeling their smart. The company now moved backwards, and soon arrived where Thwackham had got Mr. Bliffle again on his legs. Here we cannot suppress a pious wish that all quarrels were to be decided by those weapons only with which nature, knowing what is proper for us, hath supplied us, and that cold iron which to be used in digging no bowels but those of the earth. Then would war, the pastime of monarchs, be almost inoffensive, and battles between great armies might be fought at the particular desire of several ladies of quality, who, together with the kings themselves, might be actual spectators of the conflict. Then might the field be this moment well strewed with human carcasses, and the next the dead men, or infinitely the greatest part of them, might get up, like Mr. Bay's troops, and march off either at the sound of a drum or fiddle, as should be previously agreed upon. I would avoid, if possible, treating this matter ludicrously, lest grave men and politicians, whom I know to be offended at a jest, may cry pish at it. But, in reality, might not a battle be as well decided by the greater number of broken heads, bloody noses, and black eyes, as by the greater heaps of mangled and murdered human bodies? Might not towns be contended for in the same manner? Indeed, this may be thought too detrimental a scheme to the French interest, since they would thus lose the advantage they have over other nations in the superiority of their engineers. But when I consider the gallantry and generosity of that people, I am persuaded that they would never decline putting themselves upon a par with their adversary, or, as the phrase is, making themselves his match. But such reformations are rather to be wished than hoped for. I shall content myself, therefore, with this short hint, and return to my narrative. Western began now to inquire into the original rise of this quarrel, to which neither Blilful nor Jones gave any answer. But Thwackham said surly, I believe the cause is not far off. If you beat the bushes well, you may find her. Find her? replied Western. What? Have you been fighting for a wench? Ask the gentleman in his waistcoat there, said Thwackham. He 
best knows. Nay, then, cries Western, it is a winch, certainly. Ah, Tom, Tom, thou art a liquorish dog. But come, gentlemen, be all friends, and go home with me, and make final peace over a bottle. I ask your pardon, sir, says Thwackum. It is no such slight matter for a man of my character to be thus injuriously treated and buffeted by a boy, only because I would have done my duty in endeavouring to detect and bring to justice a wanton harlot. But, indeed, the principal fault lies in Mr. Allworthy and yourself. For if you put the laws in execution, as you ought to do, you will soon rid the country of these vermin. I would as soon rid the country of foxes, cries Western. I think we ought to encourage the recruiting, those numbers which we are every day losing in the war. But where is she? Prithee, Tom, show me. He then began to beat about, in the same language and in the same manner, as if he had been beating out a hare, and at last cried out, "Soho, Puss is not far off. Here's her form upon my soul. I believe I may cry, stole away. And indeed so he might, for he had now discovered the place where the poor girl had, at the beginning of the fray, stolen away, upon as many feet as a hare generally uses in travelling. Sophia now desired her father to return home, saying she found herself very faint, and apprehended a relapse. The squire immediately complied with his daughter's request, for he was the fondest of parents he earnestly endeavoured to prevail with the whole company to go and sup with him, but Bliffle and Thwackham absolutely refused, the former saying there were more reasons than he could then mention why he must decline this honour, and the latter declaring, perhaps rightly, that it was not proper for a person of his function to be seen at any place in his present condition. Jones was incapable of refusing the pleasure of being with his Sophia, so he marched with Squire Western and his ladies, the parson bringing up the rear. This had, indeed, offered to tarry with his brother Thwackham, professing his regard for the cloth would not permit him to depart. But Thwackham would not accept the favour and, with no great civility, pushed him after Mr. Western. Thus ended the bloody fray, and thus shall end the fifth book of this history. End of Section 18 of Tom Jones Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox Spring 2008